When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Tuesday, July 6, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Today, we're looking at oil prices in decline after OPEC production hike talks falter, bond yields sinking to the lowest level since February, and choppy trading in U.S. equity markets after a record close on Friday. All that and more on the show today. We are joined today by Weston Nakamura. We've had to make a last-minute change. Uh, due to factors beyond our control. Tony Greer will be back shortly. But today, we've got Weston in, who is an absolute hero for jumping on at like 4.45, 4.50 local time in Tokyo. Weston, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on such short notice. Uh, It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me at such such an hour. (laughs) This is going to be fun, Weston, because we get to basically talk uh, just like two guys catching up on what's going on in markets. Um, so first, what are your thoughts? Broad, big picture here. Are you following the oil story, the bond story, U.S. equities? What are you looking at? What's the big picture going on for you right now in Tokyo? Uh, so as far as if you're talking about just price action for the markets, um, it really kind of started for me with um, the Reserve Bank of Australia yesterday uh, well, I guess sort of yesterday, um, they had a their July policy meeting, which was a uh, very sort of, you know, they, they kicked a lot of stuff down the road for this particular meeting. Um, there's a lot that was kind of on the, on the, on the plate um, to see if uh, the RBA would extend their yield curve control out for um, another, you know, a few months till November of 2024. They did not. They did. In, they did uh, extend their. QE bond buying, but instead of doing five billion AUD per per week, they're now doing four billion. So it's kind of this middle ground between, yeah, they're continuing easing, but they're scaling back the amount of easing. Is that tapering or is that not? Um, but either way, AUD JPY uh, is something that I closely watch for risk assets, highly correlated to this the is Nikkei Aussie, and Aussie dollar, Aussie yep. dollar Japanese, yeah. Aussie yen. Yep, um, for the carry trade, and then. Uh, yeah, sure enough, you see, um, I have a chart, I've put up uh, charts on the exchange about this, but um, you basically you have a very tight correlation between uh, Aussie yen and, and, and uh, E-mini futures, and you can see this giant fall, uh, you know, in, uh, well, it's not giant, but you can see this fall in E-minis um, before cash equity opened for the U.S. today, and that was preceded slightly by uh, AUDJPY, so that's what I'm uh, keeping my eye on. And what does that mean? By the way, E-mini futures are the futures on the S&P 500 that trade uh, with uh, relatively deep liquidity uh, after hours here. But what's the significance of that trade for you, Weston? So this is this is basically how um, I've been looking at the, the post-COVID crash, like down to the moment um, and up until sort of recently. But 
throughout the majority of 2020, when markets were just unconditionally, you know, when uh, SPX was just unconditionally going upwards, regardless of what the COVID story was um, or the economic story was. And the reason is because uh, of the Aussie yen carry trade. And so for people who aren't familiar with what that is, yes, the Aussie yen is basically, you know, it's obviously a currency pair, but it's a, a carry trade is basically when you are borrowing in a low yielding currency and you're investing in a higher yielding currency. And so you're basically arbing the spread between JGBs at 0% and wherever else that's not at 0%. Australia used to be at like 5% while JGBs were at zero. So that had like a very nice sort of carry um, spread. And that actually fueled a lot of the subprime mortgage um, you know, uh, instruments that eventually, you know, destroyed the world. And then you saw a massive correction in, in uh, Aussie dollar uh, following or in the middle of 2008 or, or right after th 2008, rather. But Aussie yen basically is a carry trade that was like the go-to carry trade. You basically get your yield from that and then you take those proceeds and you invest in risk assets. Uh, the spread between JGBs and Australian yields, however, did collapse recently or the last few years because RBA started cutting rates down to record low levels to the point where it kind of became pointless to put on an AUD JPY carry trade. Right. So, however, so the, the Reserve yeah. Bank of Australia begins acting uh, more like the Bank of Japan, and therefore the spread collapses. Yes, but they start acting like the Bank of Japan in a different way in which that makes it very, very attractive. So March, I believe it was March 16th, 2020, if I have my dates correct. It was shortly before Powell came out and said, all risk assets have a net under them for unlimited forever. Um, the, Reserve, the Reserve Bank of Australia became the second central bank, second to only the, the Bank of Japan, to institute yield curve control. And to this day, those are the only two central banks, major central banks that have yield curve control. The, Australian, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia and the, the Bank of Japan. Why is that significant? Because a carry trader only cares about yield volatility. If I am borrowing yen at zero, if I'm investing in Aussie dollars at one and a half percent, I don't want any of that like to compress because if it does, I owe my broker money because I'm leveraged 200x on my uh, carry trade. So right. as long as that yield spread stays intact, then I'm fine. But the, so my my enemy is yield volatility on either side, on the JGB side or the um, the Australian rate side. Well, JGBs are pinned down uh, because of yield curve curve control. Now here comes the RBA suddenly pinning their rates down. The only two central banks in the world to do this, and right now, and that that essentially makes the AUD JPY carry trade effectively a zero yield on both sides trade by policy by central bank policy. And so you saw a ton of levered, uh, like 200x levered long AUD JPY carry traders put the trade on. They look around. They see SPX just had the sharpest correction in the world. They see Powell just put a biggest Fed put ever under, under the market. They went long. And they get credited to their account every night that the uh, carry trade is on, that it's positive. And then they just keep going long um, SPX. And so it's very highly correlated. And so that's basically what's been driving market, markets um, up basically throughout all of 2020. And then that kind of unwound uh, earlier this year, um, but seems to be sort of, you know, it's still kind of relevant um, 
So that's why, you know, yesterday I was watching that very carefully, given the uh, RBA policy announcement. Yeah, and this is really interesting. Look, uh, a highly levered trade with a positive carry is a great thing until it isn't. And that's the challenge, understanding this, particularly when it's really a central bank uh, trade. You're basically trading, uh, in effect, you're trading the, the, the future on basically policy expectations, right? I mean, how else do you see it but that? Yeah, well, you're... You're trading on, um, you're betting on central banks to manipulate their respective sovereign curves, to to suppress yield volatility, you know, volatility in in, the, like we will not allow uh, markets to behave like markets. Essentially, that's what you're betting on when you're going uh, levered long as much as they did at when they did, um, and then when you're investing in risk assets. Um, and you get a margin call, then you have to start unwinding a whole bunch of positions. You need liquidity, and that's why you have these very correlated sort of moves. Um, so it's very interesting. And then also, like you know, there are if like you could just you could just pull up a chart of AUD, JPY, and you know, E minis or Nikkei. Actually, the Nikkei uh, futures are actually even more so correlated. But um, there are like a few instances in 2020 in June and July where you see them basically moving in tandem and then you suddenly see like this bump up in uh australian uh uh in AUD JPY, um kind of like outperforming and what that was was the narrative of when fed um ycc was being speculated and if the federal reserve does it well now if the fed institutes yield curve control you now have three currency pairs available to do the carrot trade Right now, you only have AUD and JPY. If the United States does uh, yield curve control, now you have AUD JPY, AUD USD, and USD JPY. And that gives you a lot more choices. And so that's going to be, you know, Australian dollar positive for more people kind of putting the trade on. And ultimately, when that didn't happen in both July and June and July, you saw futures sell off. And so that's what those like kind of like bumps were. And you see a subsequent sell off in equity markets as well. And yeah. then when that happens, you get the the crowd saying, you know, the talking head saying like, oh, it was Powell's like you know, wore the wrong color necktie or whatever it was. N not not understanding market dynamics. So. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, and talking of market dynamics, this would be a totally new regime if we were ever to see yield curve controls here in the United States. It seems uh, recently this is the opposite direction the Fed is going in. We're talking here uh, in the U.S., obviously, uh, about rate hikes uh, coming in uh, potentially as soon as 2022. Uh, uh, maybe even this year, some of the hawks might say. Uh, so this is a kind of a new regime. Is it a normalization era? Are some of these trades going to unwind? Is that sort of par for the course at this point? Um, I would actually submit to you that the United States has youth curve control as we speak, um, either directly or indirectly. But Bank of Japan yield curve control is indirect United States yield curve control because Japan is the, the largest foreign creditor to the United States. Japan is sitting on a of cash. They invest in U.S. Treasuries. They get nothing at home. 
And so when the Bank of Japan is capping the 10-year JGB yield at plus or minus 0.1% or 0.2%, they're going to go and buy U.S. Treasuries, and that caps U.S. Treasury yields. So BOJ is doing indirectly uh, yield curve control on the U.S. Treasury curve. Yeah, that's so we are kind of in that sort of dynamic already. That's interesting in a controversial position. I'm sure there are those who would disagree who would say formal yield curve controls are something that have to be uh, executed uh, sort of uh, endogenously by a central bank. But this is really an interesting point. I, I haven't. I, I should probably bring up the tick data while I'm saying this, but uh, I believe uh, Japan is now once again the largest holder of U.S. Treasury debt. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's. It's also partially because China hasn't been as aggressively buying, but Japan is certainly. If you look at USD JPY and the US ten-year Treasury uh, year date, uh, the, that's the exact same chart. Yeah, and you can find all this on the uh, Treasury website at the US uh, International. It's the uh, what is it? The the, the Treasury International Capital uh, Table that they that they publish uh, regularly. I think they surpassed Japan. Surpassed was it about eighteen months ago? China historically, I mean, it was always the largest holder of U.S. debt historically for the last, you know, 15 or 20 years had been uh, the, had been Japan and then obviously switched to China as they began to marginally decline their purchases of U.S. Uh, Treasury securities. Uh, Japan once again became the top holder of that debt. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's why it was. So I was I was obviously long uh, SPX throughout all this throw the pandemic and all that because of the the carry trade. And then when in 20 in 2021 uh, with this year, suddenly we're greeted with a 10 year yield that moves from, you know, well under 1% through 1%, basically up 100 basis points in like the span of like, what, like four or five weeks, right? And that caused havoc everywhere. And uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia had their first bout with yield curve control fighting with the bond market. And then at the same time, the Bank of Japan totally separately removed the cap, the upper cap on their end of the upper end of the, their yield curve control, which means rate volatility on both sides of AUDJPY. Welcome back. And so I, um, I didn't go, I didn't get bearish uh, uh, SPX, I said, I said like explicitly, I'm not bearish yet, but I'm going to take off my lungs. Uh, I think that this is the top. And apparently I was pretty early. That was at SPX 400, so, <laughs> or I'm sorry, 4,000. And here we yeah, are. I was gonna say, you were early, what was it, <laughs> 31? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the questions are starting to stream in, uh, Wes. And first question, by the way, let me address this one. No, Tony is not absent due to an NFT glitch. <laughs> Tony is very much a real flesh and blood human. We've just had a little bit of a glitch. He will be back shortly uh, to have this conversation and to talk about what I'm sure uh, people are interested in hearing from Tony, which is all about commodities, which is one of the big stories today, which hopefully we'll have a chance to get to. But in the meantime, a uh, question, this is a great one for you, Weston, from Prius Omega. Uh, I noticed that gold and the 10-year yield fell together today, and perhaps unrelated, uh, USD-RUB, this is the dollar-ruble pair, spiked. Uh, can you comment on that? Any thoughts? Um, I So I don't know the intraday price action off the top of my head to, to be able to comment on that. So uh, no, to, to, to tell you the truth. Um, but what I will say is, that once again, if you actually look even at a long-term chart of, if you look at CME yen futures, so like it's like six J Y, I forgot what the, the and then whatever the the um, 
expert coders. If you look at CME yen futures and you look at CME gold futures from 2013, from Abenomics on, same exact percent for percent uh, chart, gold breaks out. And then actually year to date, they're actually the same right now too. Reason is because, presumably, uh, dollar is a safe haven for everything. The safe haven from the dollar is gold in the end. So um, I would say maybe take a look at the yen and see if that correlates to uh, the intraday on gold. But otherwise, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. Here's a question that comes to us uh, from Evan. Uh, this is questions really about kind of just, I think, a summary statement and maybe your view of the statement that you just made before on the carry trade. Uh, are longs on AUD JPY still a good idea? The peer, well, the pair appears to be a, I'm sorry, this has just changed in my document. Give me one second here, Weston. Um, so this is, this is, I'm sorry, excuse me, from Josh. Uh, is the carry trade dead given interest rate differentials have collapsed basically to zero? This is the question I was thinking of. It's really asking you your view uh, of whether or not the uh, phenomenon that you've described is in fact now totally played out. Are we at the end of that trade? Yeah, so again, the carry trade isn't, wasn't attractive uh, in May, uh, in March 2020 because of some yield spread. It was, the yield spread was nothing. The, the reason it was attractive was because of central bank policy on both sides suppressing yield volatility. So you have the BOJ and the RBA respectively nailing down their yields. That means go levered long. It doesn't matter if it's like a tiny spread. You can lever up as much as you want because the central banks are just going to, they have them pinned down essentially. So that's what made it um, not dead. That's what made it alive. It wasn't the yield spread. But now that there is, now that the uh, both the, the BOJ and the RBA seem to maybe inadvertently, um, you know, uh, welcome back in yield volatility on both JGBs and on uh, Australian um, yields, that's no longer, you know, an attractive carrot trade for at least for the people that got in. It's a totally different trade now from what it from what it was when they entered. Plus, you're looking at markets that are at all time highs as opposed to just yeah. having some luck. Yeah, important clarification. Okay, so now on to the question that I just asked, uh, which is about the Aussie-Japan uh, trade. Uh, are longs on AUD-JPY still a good idea? Uh, so Aussie dollar, Japanese yen, the pair appears to be at a very attractive level now. So apart from the carry trade, apart from the borrow, what do you think about the relative valuations of the currencies? Um, I don't think that I, I I I don't think that it's incredibly attractive by any means um, and I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad trade it's it, you're it's a momentum trade um, at and so you're gonna, you're just betting on continued momentum but um, which is not necessarily to say that it's a bad trade but you are gonna just continue to buy near highs if that's the case uh, I would right. say that again uh, this I'm just trying to go off the top of my head so I, I don't really remember um, but uh, CFTC data on on um, commitment of traders uh, positioning, speculative positions. So like the you know like hedge funds essentially, they I believe as of like end of the mid June or so, I think they flipped to net short. Um, not that they had a really big net long position, but they flipped net short. Um, you're starting to see commodities come off uh, in line with. Um, 
with the Aussie dollar, you're seeing a lot of that. So it looks to me like there's more, there's more of a cross asset, you know, move that's that it, the Aussie dollar is not really exempt from. So if commodities are going to continue to pull down, and you see, you know, um, like dollar strength against um, AUD, and then you start seeing hedge funds start closing their positions, and then start turning net short. I mean, you can you can try to fight that if you want to, but it's not really. I I think that it's you know, it's not for me. I wouldn't go along. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Talking of trades that are for you, we've got a post coming to us from Gabriel who's asking you to explain the trade you just posted on the exchange. I was just giving it a look. It looks like that's actually uh, SPX uh, AUD JPY uh, following the RBA press release uh, with a little bit of uh, seasoning thrown in from watching SoftBank. Tell us a little bit about that trade. Um, yeah, so I so I made two posts. One was pre, um, one was Asia market open. So in about almost 24 hours ago at this point. And uh, then the other one was um, before uh, US Open. But so the things I was watching yesterday, 24 hours ago today from, from now, um, was the fact that SoftBank, okay, so US was closed on Monday for, um, for the holiday, for July 4th or July 5th, I suppose, um, which is a really interesting time to look at markets like in Asia, especially because those are times where you get to see what the market looks like absent U.S. investors in foreign markets, and SoftBank dropped five and a half percent. And why did that happen? Because of this. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's DD, the that uh, Chinese rideshare service. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that story, you have, you have SoftBank who has a twenty percent stake in that. Um, that. That story basically, you know, slammed this brand new IPO uh, that just got listed on Wednesday. Um, Chinese regulators came out on Thursday. They slammed uh, they slammed the, the company for, um, you know, basically privacy data collection and all that. Um, and they de- and then they and then on Sunday they followed up with more actions to uh, ban them from like app stores and all that. So. And so on on Monday, you got to see a pure non-US investor-related SoftBank share reaction to that. And that was that was a I mean five and a five and a half percent on SoftBank is is pretty dead. SoftBank is now down 30% off its peak, um, its recent peak, uh well into the bear market. Um, you know, it, it's tr- it tracks right in line with things like Bitcoin and all that. And um and it's significant um for SoftBank, who is basically this you know, uh, speculative Nasdaq, you know, trading hedge fund sort of thing, um, and it's significant that SoftBank is is pulling back like that because it's going to have an impact on yeah, like Silicon Valley on 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 Nasdaq um, components um, on uh, you know just global tech as 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 a whole, and then also on the Nikkei as a heavyweight, 
And so I'm watching that, and I'm watching um, the the China story, and watching um, Aus- you know the the Australian Central Bank um, as right. well. And it just seemed like it was not going to be a you know a particularly good day. It turned out like it wasn't you know it was okay, but yeah. Yeah. By the way, we should point out uh, you talked about the the soft bank angle there extensively. Let me just weigh in on the DD side of the story. It wasn't that the Chinese regulators were concerned about like you know privacy uh, of the riders. They're concerned about this massive trove of data uh, that one of their companies is uh, developing uh, falling into the hands of U.S. companies. So um, yeah. you know it's really like an interesting sort of irony. Uh, because this is something that we hear a great deal about, obviously, forced technology transfer, uh, all of these things that the China hawks say. Uh, and now, you know, it's almost as though the question is, do the Chinese believe that they have a risk here of the of the script getting flipped and having their data pulled? So uh, obviously, this story also comes on the back of speculation about additional restrictions on Chinese companies listing uh, on non-Chinese exchanges. So this is something that will be interesting uh, to watch for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah, uh, I actually so I also put out a trade idea out there, well, kind of a trade thesis of um, it's long capitalism, short with Chinese characteristics is what I called it. Um, <laughs> and essentially, so what you can do, um, and this is not trading advice, <laughs> but um, what I, what I can theoretically do, I suppose, is so to short like Chinese equities is to short anything is dangerous, um, but if you just do a market neutral pair trade where you're long something and you're short something. So you short something, you use the proceeds and you go long something with them. You're market neutral, uh, you're directionally market neutral and your out of pocket costs are basically nothing except for exchange fees and all that. So if you go long, um, there are ETFs like uh, FXI, which is the iShares BlackRock, like you know, generic China big cap. But then there's other ones that, um, there are other uh, ETFs like CQQQ, which is what you think it is, Chinese QQQ. If you went long uh, just the Qs, year to date, you'd be up about 7.5%. If you went long the Qs, short Chinese uh, CQQQ, um, your returns would be 56%, which is quite a difference. So it's kind of a way to enhance your long Qs um, by a lot while reducing uh, directional volatility while reducing your out-of-pocket sort of principal costs to put the trade on in the first place. And so that's the way I was looking at, you know, sort of trading this, because this, this, the, the Chinese like sort of crackdown on tech is it's not gonna, this is not like it, right? It's gonna continue. So you, this is how you can maintain upside for uh, tech X Chinese characteristics. Interesting. Uh, Weston, you mentioned earlier that SoftBank was kind of like a hedge fund, uh, which brings me to something that I wanted excuse me, to set up, uh, which is a clip here uh, between Mike Green uh, and Giuseppe Paleologo uh, of Hudson River Trading. This is something that aired on the platform uh, on Real Vision, I believe on the essential tier today. Uh, Listen, if you've ever wondered what it's like to be on the inside of a major hedge fund, one of these platform hedge funds, this is the clip for you. Uh, Let's take a listen. Post-2013, after the taper tantrum, we began to see a very notable deterioration in the returns for hedge funds, even the platforms on a relative basis, right? The absolute returns fell pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. I think there's something that's going on that is influencing that. Okay. One thing I would say, actually, the platforms have suffered less Mm -hmm. than 
standalone hedge funds. Okay, totally it agree. Is true, totally it is agree. true that that um, it is true that the years of printing seventeen percent every year are behind us. That's for sure. At the same time, though. Um, I will not mention the names, but I, I have a very good friend who works in a platform as a CEO. And, and I remember I had a conversation with him at the end of 2018, and he told me his platform is mostly long short equities. And he told me, we have to find something new because there is no juice any longer in long short equities. Yeah, this is the kind of conversation that you're just not going to hear anyone else. Mike uh, Green, obviously, is a portfolio manager and senior strategist. Uh, Giuseppe is a very seasoned chief risk officer. Uh, Weston, you covered uh, hedge funds, I think, at Goldman Sachs, uh, but possibly elsewhere. What is it that most people get wrong looking from the outside into these large platform hedge funds? Um, yeah, that's a, well, that was a really good segue. <laughs> like, I think it was totally unintentional too. But what we were just talking about this pair trade, these sort of long short, um, this is what um, they are talking about. What Mike Green is talking about um, in this in this video. But um, what he's talking about is the, the 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 platform model. And essentially, so there's a one of my favorite interviews from from Real Vision ever is Dimitri Belyazny and Rao from October of 2020, uh, 20, I forgot what it was actually. But uh, Dmitry Belyazny, Belyazny Asset Management is a massive hedge fund. And what he is as a, uh, manage, a hedge fund manager is he manages portfolio managers. So people are, portfolio managers are in their own pods. They're kind of, you know, long forward, short GM or whatever it is. And they're just in their own like pods and their own teams, their own analysts, and they each have their own pods and their own AUM. And he is he's the only one with the above view. And so he'll sometimes see that like, okay, there's a lot of a lot of my PMs are putting on like a long Sony trade and I'm the fund overall is overweight Sony. He will go in and like secretly like cut down one of their positions to balance it out. But he won't ever tell that PM that that's the position he's cutting because he doesn't want to get into their heads. So he's managing a portfolio of portfolio managers. That's what the platform model is. It's very fascinating. Yeah, very well said. Uh, and great to have someone who has actually covered this on the inside to give that explanation. Uh, Weston, two things. First of all, thank you so much for joining us on about six minutes notice in the middle of the night, Tokyo time. I've got one final question for you that I've seen coming in here repeatedly, and I've been wondering it myself. Behind you, real brick wall or textured wallpaper? It's it's not it's not like brick. It's like stone, but it's definitely not it's definitely not textured wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> Weston, it's always a pleasure to have you on the Real Vision Daily Briefing, and I hope we can have you back again soon. Yeah, let's time uh, just a little bit less notice, please. Yeah, we can think we do next time. We can do like three or four <laughs> minutes notice. You're just a superstar for joining us, man. This was fantastic. Uh, it's it's always a pleasure. I'm just trying to fill some big shoes that I won't be able to. So, <laughs> You did great. Weston, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for watching, everyone. Tony Greer back shortly. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.